This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. And Exodus 25 it is. Um, context, because uh, we do have some people that were here. We are going through Exodus, and everybody knows the famous parts of Exodus, which is there's Moses, he's in a bush, he raises up into a fine young man, and then he kills people and becomes a murderer. And then he runs off into the wilderness for 40 years, and God still calls him out and says, I want you to birth a nation for me. And this goes all the way back to Genesis, at the very beginning of Genesis, when humans fell. This is God's plan for redemption. And he wants a nation that's going to set things up for a Messiah. And that nation's going to be this foundational element in the history of the universe that's going to be there. But that nation has to do some things the right way, right? So God's going to do that with these people that were slaves. So it's not a nation that was born out of power or strength or military. It's a nation that's just born out of, we'll follow God and spray some lamb's blood on our doorposts. Really, that's where an entire nation comes from. So in Exodus 20 through 23, God shares his vision for what a holy nation looks like. And the holy nation has laws. And those laws are amazing. Laws like, let's not kill each other when we feel like it. Let's not steal from each other when we feel like it. Let's not covet each other's stuff because we always do that. And he used these kind of basic, simple laws and establishes those in 20 through 23. In Exodus 24, which we did last week, the people agree and go, yay, we like this idea for a country. We would like to be part of this country. And God says, okay, that's great. And they sign a verbal covenant, a written covenant, and then they seal that covenant with sacrifices. The life of oxen are given, and that means our lives are bound to this covenant. We're going to live like God says we're supposed to. God's going to bless us abundantly. Pretty good deal for the humans. We haven't gotten to the part where humans screw this up yet, right? We're still in the garden a little bit, right? The, the fall hasn't happened, and Israel hasn't messed this up. So we're still at a point where Israel is doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing right now. So that's where we start tonight. Oh, the other piece is after they sign this covenant, there's a large amount of this fiery Shekinah glory that's on top of the Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up and into it, which would have looked like walking into a giant furnace, right? So from the Israeli people's perspective, they're like, well, he was a nice guy, but you know, it would in all appearances, it would look like he just went up into that fire column, and he's now no longer with us. But they have this law that's with them. So the Lord is speaking to Moses in verse 1 of Exodus 25, and they're kind of on their own, and they had this kind of dinner with the leaders of Israel and whatnot. Um, but this is kind of the Lord giving some instruction to Moses, which he later writes down, right? So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. And from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair. You all know at this point I'm getting ready to go, right? Because I'm like, oh, cool. I get to look up all these dyes. Ram skins dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil or and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate. And I'm standing up at this point going, this is going to be a fun week. And then let me make the sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings just so you should make it. I'm emphasizing pattern because God is a God of order. Remember that from the very beginning? 
You know, God looked at the, the chaos and didn't like it. He looked at this void and said, this is not what I want. And he created order out of nothing. So I'm going to start off with the offering piece. In verse 1, it says there's an offering. Uh, literally translated, that's a heave offering or a heft offering. Something that you is heavy that you unburden yourself of. Almost like all this stuff they took from the Egyptians was a burden to them, not a blessing. So you can see them packing up the scarlet dyes and the gold and the onyxes as they're going door to door with the Egyptians. And they're like, sure, take all my stuff, just get out of Egypt. And they're like taking all this stuff, but it's kind of almost like a burden on them. So it's a heave offering. It comes out of people's personal wealth. It is not a tithe offering. It's a different kind of thing. It's like, get rid of that extra stuff you don't need. We had that little freezer that was blocking up our living room. And I was like, Steph, we gotta get rid of the freezer. We don't use it. We got the big one in the garage. It's just extra stuff. We don't want it. We don't need it. And it's getting in the way for Bible study. And Levi couldn't sit where he's sitting right now if we still had that thing. So I'm like, either you sell the thing on Craigslist or I'm putting it on the curb with a free sign. And she sold it on Craigslist. So good job. It was very nice. And that paid for dinner tonight. So, But it's a heave offering. It's that junk you don't need, like gold and silver and onyx and blue threads and all this stuff. And God doesn't say how much of it. And I think that's kind of interesting. In other words, God knows exactly how much excess stuff is sitting in all the Israelites' houses. And all Moses has to do is ask for it. And what he needs will show up. Talk to anybody in the ministry. This happens all the time. What you need just shows up. It's a heave offering. Um, so this is, uh, um, God asked for that offering. I also think it's kind of neat. He asked for the offering before there's a need for it. He hasn't even told Moses what he's going to do with all this stuff. He's just giving them the shopping list. And it's an odd shopping list. Like really take a look at it. You want ram skins and you want onyx stones like what do you need all this for so god's asking for it before he knows it even though god knows what he's going to do with it the amounts are not indicated and you have all these kinds of things and there's the other piece it's not that god needs these things because they're out in the desert right they're at sinai it's a rough part of territory we've seen that geography it's not like they that god needs all these things to be happy god's the god of the universe he doesn't need things but he creates things, or he can create things, and he gives us this opportunity to do offerings because sometimes the stuff we cling to is the very stuff that keeps us away from God. And sometimes that extra stuff sitting around is the stuff we got to get rid of, right? And I think that's kind of a cool idea or got there. When people or when the Israelis give freely, note how much emphasis is put on verse 1, from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. There's not much translation that's needing there. It's exactly in the English what we think it is. God wants people to give out of their heart more than he needs their stuff because God's not broke and he doesn't need it. Anytime you hear someone in the ministry that says, we need this money to do this thing, they don't understand God. There's something broken. And I see it way too much in the American church where people are begging their congregations for money. God's not broke. If God's in it, if God guides in a direction, he'll provide for that direction. And it happens in those kinds of churches that do that. So they have to give or every person gives according to whatever's in their heart and whatever they're willing to give. There's also offerings where it hurts a little bit. This isn't that kind of offering. This isn't like, wow, I'm giving beyond what I really should be giving. This is like, ah, you can have this junk. I've been carrying it around since Egypt and it's just junk to me, right? It's extra gold that gold's heavy and I got to carry it, right? And if we're going to keep traveling around this wilderness for 40 more years, you can have the extra gold and whatever you're going to do with it's great. Every man, according to what he purposes in his heart, let him give, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. 
That's exactly what God's doing here. So immediately they make this covenant and immediately God says, before there's any need, he says, okay, get rid of the extra stuff and get it out of your life because it's just burdening you and, and wearing you down. Moses is going to get given a blueprint. I love this. And I'll say right now that I'm going to do the first half of this, 20, 20, whatever chapter we're in, 25 tonight. Zach's going to do the other half next week because we're going to get an engineer to cover the engineering parts of this. <laughs> so, and I'll still be here next week, but I thought it might be a neat opportunity to have somebody else teach the Bible study. So Zach's been gearing up for it, and we need to all pray for him because I know he's going to be super nervous, and it's super hard to do that. But I think this is the kind of thing where God's going to give Moses a blueprint. Why is he giving him a blueprint? Right after the covenant, right after he saves them, right after he redeems them, he gives them a plan. Here's the game plan. And what he wants to do is make a model of heaven or a mirror of our relationship with God. It's very important then. The details of this get to be really key. But first, all the geeky stuff. Are you ready? Verse 3. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Purple, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood. This is the shopping list. And it's a shopping list for what's going to be the tabernacle or this big ornate tent where they're going to have this representation of God and our relationship to God. Okay? So if you take all these amounts, this little simple list I just read, if you put them in today's terms, we're talking about millions of dollars worth of stuff. Let me explain why. It's not so hard with gold, silver, and bronze. We know those are valuable metals. At this period in history, to get those metals, you had to get slave labor to go down into mines, and they didn't have good mining technology. They caved in. It was a high-death occupation. So when you weighed out gold, you were actually weighing it out in terms of people's lives. How many slaves are we willing to sacrifice to get that gold out of the mountain tunnels? Because they will cave in. They cave in regularly, and that sort of thing happened. But you had places like Egypt, which were happy to sacrifice slaves to go get that gold because they wanted the gold. Gold throughout all of these ancient cultures represented the most holy of metals. It's the most pure because it melts fairly easily and you can get the impurities out of it fairly quick. So gold and silver are two metals where you can get them almost entirely pure if you heat them up and cook them enough, right? And gold doesn't corrode, neither does silver. It's why we use it for jewelry. It doesn't turn our skin green or anything like that. It's a metal that doesn't corrode over time. It stays pure and you can get it. Bronze usually has about 10% tin mixed into it. It's, it looks really nice, but it also has some impurities to it. And it's important where we see the gold getting used and where we see the bronze getting used in the tabernacle, right? There's no iron on this list as iron is associated with war. And there's no iron anywhere near this. Later when we get to Leviticus, they can't even use iron tools or the sound of iron tools can't be made within earshot of the temple, right? because it has to do with war. So we don't put that sort of thing there. Um, the blue dye, this is crazy. The only way to get blue dye in this period of history is that you had to get dye from shellfish, particularly Murex shellfish, right? They're, uh, they're mostly on Manoa. These things just grow all the way. So one island in the Mediterranean, which would have been part of Egypt's trade network, had these little shellfish. It's probably not indigo, which is a plant that got imported at about 3000 BC. It could have been indigo, but it's probably not because at this time, the good stuff, the blue stuff came out of there. Another place you can get blue dye might be from copper mines, kind of the leftover, but that's like this light blue stuff. It's not the rich royal blue that would have been used here. Um, so these dyes would get used in uh, Israeli prayer shawls. And when we look at the color of blue, even today, that's used with Israel, it's that bright royal blue, right? Um, 
so it's still today. So <clears throat> the other reason we when you know it's these little snail shells is they did a, an excavation at Tel Shikmona in Israel, and they found stacks of these seashells from these little snails. So here's how you get the dye. You get these little snails, you put them out on a rock on the beach by the millions, right? You let them dry out so the goopy snail part actually dies and falls out of there. But then when it's dead, the part of the snail that doesn't die is a little gland of a snail that's about the, as big as a drop from a, a hypodermic needle. That's how much dye you get from one snail. And they would get vats of this dye. You can imagine the expense. Blue dye at this point in history is worth more than gold because of the work that it takes to get that dye. It's the reason why even in the Middle Ages, Mary was covered in blue when they did when they um, uh, illuminated Bibles. It's because the blue dye was the most expensive dye that you could get, second only to purple. So blue was generally the color of divinity and purple was the color of human royalty. And even today, those two things are fairly associated. So we get to purple. Purple would be argamon, uh, also comes from the same murex shells. The sad part about the little snails is most of the time when you pulled the little, the, their little uh, gland, when you pulled the gland out of the snail, it was usually purple. When you got the blue ones, it was like finding a pearl in a clam. So of these millions of snail shells, you'd mostly get purple, but sometimes you'd get blue. And then you'd take the blue and put it over here and the purple here. Imagine that for your job for 10 hours a day, <laughs> right? Um, so you'd capture them, you'd do that, you'd get it a drop at a time. And even a gram of this dye, again, was really, really valuable. It's part of the Egyptian trade with Manoa and Phoenicia and how they did things. So Tyrian purple and this blue dye, extremely expensive, even to get a small little jar of it, right? So to dye thread or even whole sheets of fabric with it is just something only royalty could do. Scarlet, this is even cooler. They came from, and it's amazing where we find dyes, right? How did they first figure out that those snails had glands in them that would actually give a permanent dye. And I think of Shadow when I think of that. And I think it must have been Shadow on the beach eating some snails, and he comes home with a big dog smile on his face, and it's all purple. And then you think, where did you get all this purple in your mouth from? And that must be how they first, but anyways. Cochioid scale insects. If you find oak trees in the Middle East, sometimes there's little bugs that will grow underneath the bark of an oak tree. Again, how they figured out that they had proper good dye in them. I don't know, but these little cochioid scale insects, they only come out in the springtime because the larvae will wake up and they'll suck on the oak sap, which is why we call them red oaks. Because when you suck on the sap, these little larvae would fill up with all this red yummy sap and then they live for about two weeks. That's when you harvest your dye. You got about two weeks a year, you bring the whole, down, town, the whole town down to the oak grove and you start plucking the larvae out of the oak and then you get your red dye because you just pop the larvae and they're full of all this red stuff. It's wonderful. So <laughs> the males will live about two weeks. They don't eat any food. They don't actually eat. All they do is find the females, have some fun with them, and then the males die. So you have to find those... Uh, those males and you 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 get that the females can have red dye in them too after they've been celebrating life with their male friends right and then the eggs themselves can also have some red red dye in them the little wormy things or the larvae are about five millimeters long by three millimeters wide think of how small these suckers are and how little dye you get from each one god's saying i want red dye and moses is like 
really? I mean, where's the oak trees? So they have to do some trade. They have to open some commerce to get this. So here's how you get them. You take those little larvae, again, you dry, dry them out until they're crispy larvae, then you boil them. So a huge pot of these wormy things. I'm sure that smells wonderful. And then you use alum, which is like a stuff we use on our cold source. If you don't use alum on your cold source, time to wake up to a whole new world of joy. Um, and you put the alum in there with the thing, and the alum helps to extract the red out, and then that little pot turns into a whole thing of red dye. Kind of neat. Not as hard to get as the seashells, because you got to go underwater to get those. Can I geek out some more? <laughs> okay, fine, fine linens. The white, this is what the Egyptians were known for. Around the ancient world, most cloth that they made was kind of a tannish, brownish, whatever, just because that's how it came out. The Egyptians figured out bleach and how to bleach it so they could get white linens, and they figured out how to do super fine thread. So when we talk about thread counts and getting really nice sheets that feel all comfortable, the Egyptians figured most of that out. And they figured out how to get great soft things, and they would do twining, or they didn't just take a thread, they would wrap threads together, which is where in Ecclesiastes we get two or three twined together is a good thing. Um, and they were talking about kind of that method of making better fabric by twining your thread before you make it into cloth, right? So that was the Egyptian folks. Again, really expensive. Goat hair, not hard to find. These people are herds people. The goat hair is not hard to find. Goat hair is more of a rough surface, and this is all going to come back to what they're doing with it here in a little bit. It's a lot like when we see a nice felt, like when we see black felt, that's a lot like what goat hair would come out like. It was kind of a rough thing, but it had a soft feel to it when you cut it down. It was usually black and coarse, um, and goats are going to get used later symbolically as a symbol for our sin. So you've got white linens, black goat furs, red, scarlet, gold, silver, purple. Are we starting to see that this is a very colorful tabernacle that's going to get formed? Okay, then the ram skins, a lot like our deer skins or lamb skins, they would have been incredibly soft and supple, the kind of leather you want to just rub into your face and love on and make pillows out of it, right? It's that kind of leather. When he says dyed red, you can put that with the little critters and the dyeing process and how expensive that leather would have been. It's the kind of leather that frankly we use in furniture today, right? Not hard to get the leather, hard to treat it and get it at that point. Um, the ram was also a substitute for Isaac. So there's a sacrificial element and a symbolic element. The weird one is badger skins. Wait, badgers? They're in Wisconsin. They're not in the Middle East. The problem with that is that the Hebrew word takash isn't really used anywhere else in the Bible. So there's a lot of historians look at this and go, okay, we know goats, we know rams. Takash, the only other kind of leather that really got used back then is going to offend those of you that are kind of animal lovers. They took sea seals because there would be marine sea life that had leather to it, and they'd make leather out of water-based animals. So if you love seals... They were abundant at one point in the Middle East. They're not anymore. And largely because they're awesome leather. And if you make, obviously, if you, so some people interpret this as dolphins or, but it's most likely seals that they would use, but it was really waterproof. So obviously these are water-based animals. So if you want to make a tabernacle that has no leaks in it, if you want a tent that really never gets beat up that way, you cover it with these 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 uh, skins. Badger is a horrible but traditional translation of that word. And it's just, I think, based on we have a little better research today. So you've got the purity of white, the sin of black, the red sacrificial blood, 
And then you've got these elements of kind of earth or brown that would have been in that final layer, or even gray if they got gray sea seals and that sort of thing. Verse six, they needed oil for the lights, extremely expensive to get again. They needed spices for the anointing oil and sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate. So oil would provide light, spices provide this kind of, uh, um, where you can kind of walk in and you can kind of smell it and see it and, and feel it. Um, obviously this tabernacle is gonna be a sensory experience. We later know from Leviticus that the kind of oil they wanted was olive oil, which again is expensive, but not, you know, in this region of the world, it's, it's there. The spices get outlined later too. Uh, they would come from stashes. They would, obviously they're coming from all over the known world at this time when we see the, the list of spices later, but they don't list it here, so I'm not gonna get into it. That saves me some for when we get to Leviticus. Onyx and other stones. Onyx is a black and white stone. Sardonyx has little red stripes in it. So actually the color scheme of onyx, no matter what kind you get, matches the black, red, and white theme that we already have. So God's a God of good home decoration, <laughs> right? And it matches all these kind of coverings. So usually onyx symbolizes the souls, the black souls of humanity with these sparks of divinity inside of them. So if you look at any gemology, um, that symbolism goes back a long ways. It's I hate to get into the gems too much because even though the gems are symbolic to the Jewish people too, they're also symbolic to a rising number of kind of pagan stuff that's coming up in our country. You got whole stones of like spirit gems and things like that. They're rocks. And when we look at them in the Bible, they're always treated as rocks. But even the rocks have value and have some meaning to them. But they're not things you worship or think energy comes out of the rocks. That's where you shift over into another whole kind of religion. So, but the they're going to be there and they're going to be for a ephod that the priests are going to wear, which have this collection of stones to say, look, I'm a good geologist. Um, and the stones will symbolize different kinds of things. But we'll get into that again because that gets talked about later. We'll talk about it later. Verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. This is going to be a visual confirmation that they serve a living God. God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So for God to say, I'm going to dwell with you or dwell among you, the word dwell there is actually tabernacle. I'm going to tabernacle among you. And it's not that God in tabernacling there means he's not elsewhere, but he's going to put himself into a presence that people can see. And this sets up the Jewish people to understand a triune God. This is a God who can be everywhere at all times, all powerful, all present, yet there can be a Shekinah glory that's in the tabernacle that God can take a part of himself and represent himself to humans. Mm -hmm. So this is going to be something that no matter where you're at in this camp of Israelites for 40 years, they can look towards the tabernacle and see this Shekinah glory above it. It's kind of cool. Notice that he doesn't start, he wants to make a sanctuary in verse 8, but if you start skimming down, he, there's nothing about the sanctuary in the rest of this chapter. He starts with the furniture. And I think that's kind of significant, but we'll get there. So tabernacle, Hebrew mishkin, uh, means to dwell. Um, later in the Greek, it's sakan, which is the root word for Shekinah glory, the presence or the dwelling of God, right? And that's where we get that word from. The cloud that Moses went up into on Sinai is actually the same kind of thing, right? It's this fiery smoke substance, would have been amazing. And of course, if you read Revelation, we're going to see it again at some point. So all of us will get to see this glory of God in this kind of presence. 
So just so, at the very end of verse 9, just so you shall make it. There's an understanding of heaven that this tabernacle is going to put into the root fiber of the Jewish people. The way they think and understand God is going to be based on this tabernacle design. And that understanding of God, and I'm saying that, it's not me saying that, that's Hebrews 8, 5 and, and Hebrews 9, 11, if you want to go do a study on that. Hebrews claims that the tabernacle is a model of what heaven's going to look like. So if you understand the tabernacle, you understand heaven. It's a model of the earthly realm. So how long does the Bible, like I'm thinking, why didn't I study this in Sunday school? And if you're running a church, why don't they study this in Sunday school? There's over 50 chapters in the Bible on the tabernacle, but most Christians are totally illiterate of the tabernacle. What they know about is whether or not we should speak in tongues which has all of about five verses in the Bible. But here's this concept that has 50 chapters that in the American church we're totally ignorant of, or mostly ignorant of. We need to know about this, and we're not doing all 50 chapters in a row, like God's kind, he splits them up. Like there's some here in Exodus, there's some in another spot, but there's gonna be a lot of that. This is the kind of stuff we should be studying because this tells us who God is and how we're supposed to relate to God. It sets us up in a way that our faith can be rooted and firm and we don't have to be given to every wind of change that comes to the church. We can know what God's plan is because he wrote it for us. This is the game plan. So God was in the garden. He dwelt among them. Humans messed it up. God comes up with this plan of redemption. He's burst this own nation and he says, I'm going to dwell among you again. This is God making steps towards humanity to once again dwell with them like he did in the garden. The next stage of this, by the way, because we're a New Testament generation, next stage of this, Jesus came and dwelt among, I'll get to those verses. An understanding of the church, so this is how we, how we should know this, it's also an understanding of ourselves. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God and you are not your own, to understand the tabernacles, to understand who we are supposed to be. Because part of the New Testament claim, if you want to be a Christian, the claim is the Shekinah glory is actually in you now. And when you walk around, people see God because you're different. And if you're not different, you should be studying the tabernacle, going, how do I start to look more like this? So the purpose of this is then to build a place for God so he can reside, dwell, and not be a distant God that's up in some, you know, the old Whitney Houston song, like the God above us or whatever. It's not a distant God. This is a God that's right there who lives with us, who's in the room with us right now. That's a pretty cool God, right? The God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, yet he's going to be there. God hasn't dwelled with them for a very long time. He's going to soon. And... In John 14, 3, Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for us that's going to look a lot like this. So if you want to know what heaven's going to look like, I like this idea, like, if you don't like what heaven's supposed to be, maybe Christianity isn't for you, right? This is a Bible study on how to not be a Christian. If you don't like the idea of hanging out with God, heaven would be a very scary place to be. But here's what John says. Jesus says, as he's, t- as he's wrapping up with his final teachings, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I want to dwell with you. That's the whole point from Genesis. I just want to be with you. I want a relationship with you. And I want to make that possible. So this tabernacle, this mishkan is a movable tent. It's not a permanent structure at this point, And God's going to show it to Moses. So he starts with the very middle of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Testimony. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half its width and a cubit and a half its height. 
and you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. The ark is then the first item and it's the central item of this tabernacle. It is the presence of God, right? Or it's a big box so far, right? What's going to go in that box later will be God's provision, a jar of manna, God's law, the tablets, and God's rule, Aaron's staff will be in there. So symbols of God's provision, his law, and his rule sit in this box in the middle of the tabernacle. That's the covenant, right, are those elements. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other. I think the second half of verse 12 is in case you didn't figure out where four rings go. And I love the repetition there. And you shall make one, make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried with them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. So leave the poles in the rings. There's no handles. And by the way, commentary on this is so fun. And if you wanted to get into Bible studies, everybody's got their own interpretation of the rings and what they symbolize and all this. None of that's really reinforced with other spots in the Bible. So I'll leave that to your own entertainment and Bible study. What I'll get is this idea that the poles aren't supposed to be removed. And I think that's a nice idea. None of that's good stuff. Uh, Later on, these rings and the poles keep it so no human actually touches the ark. So if the ark represents God, there isn't actually going to be a touching that goes on there. And only certain people can touch the poles that touch the rings that touch this thing. In other words, we're going to make something sacred. And I think that's kind of, yes, it's a box of acacia wood. Yes, it's pretty because it's been overlaid with gold. But we're just going to keep one thing sacred that represents our God, right? And also you think, didn't he just tell him to not make graven images? And so that's something you got to reconcile a little bit too. So you're not supposed to make graven images. You're not supposed to worship the ark. But you're going to see later the ark is where God's going to reside over it. You reside that glory that's visible over the ark. You don't worship the ark. And that's the difference. So we, I remember we talked a lot about, well, is any image or any graven thing? I think the difference is, do you worship that graven thing or don't you? Because clearly it's okay to do some artwork and God even has them do it within a couple chapters of, of saying, don't make graven images, right? And the Bible doesn't see that as an inconsistency at all, right? So later in 2 Samuel 6, 6, of course, we see uh, Uzzah, this good-hearted priest. They're tripping he thinks the, all, the ark's going to fall and, and we can't have it touch the dirt. And he reaches out and he touches the ark. And you know what happens to Uzzah? God kills him instantly. He's dead. So apparently God thinks humans are less clean than the dirt would be. And at the end of the day, the ark doesn't fall. So Uzzah was not trusting that God could take care of his own ark, but he gets killed for it. Um, and inside that ark is going to go the testimony verse 16 and you shall put into the ark the testimony which i will give you he hasn't even given him the law on the stones yet he's only verbally told them the law um but that's what's going to go in there so moses is going to put a copy of the law into the ark and moses is going to give that or god's going to give that to him it's interesting that god makes this furniture before he makes the building and before he puts the things in the ark right there's going to be a representation of this. The heart comes first and the other thing. The ark is also dual-natured. So there's acacia wood on the inside and gold on the overlay on the outside. There's this connection between earth and gold representing heavenly things. So there's a connection between earth and heaven that comes in the form of this ark or is represented there. Jesus does the exact same thing. John 1:14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Father, 
full of grace and truth. The ark, that truth uh, of the ark is going to travel with the 12 tribes for a long time. Jesus travels with the 12 disciples, right? The the grace that's in the ark, uh, the, the law or the grace that's put in that law or the truth of the law that's in there, Jesus comes with truth and grace. See what John's doing there? And I think it's kind of interesting. So the truth represents the law. Jesus adds some grace to it. And even if you keep reading in John in verse 16, there's grace upon grace. He adds multipliers of grace. The law is perfect and it's true, but humans are sinful. So even though the law is perfect and true, we need grace to be able to reconcile with God, right? So how is that going to get symbolized in the temple? Um, God's going to symbolize the eternal nature of that that sort of thing that's there. Um, And then there's going to be this acacia wood inside the ark um, representing kind of that earth nature. It's interesting when you see the prophets talk about Jesus, they refer to him in terms of this desert wood. Acacia wood was a, a wood, a, a desert wood. I'll let you get more into acacia wood if you want to next week. Right. Um, so it's a wood that you could find on the desert, but it's actually more valuable than our oak or our mahogany. It's a very hard wood. It resisted decay. Um, and it was, is kind of interesting. So when Isaiah 11, one, when he talks about a rod that should come from the stem of Jesse and a branch grows out of these rods. So there's going to be this, this, Messiah that comes. Jeremiah 33, 15 will cause that branch to grow up to David or out of David, a branch of righteousness. Isaiah 53, 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. This heavenly thing is going to come to earth and grow up like a normal earthly thing, but it's going to be covered in gold. It's going to have a heavenly nature, even though it's in an earthly vessel. And that's exactly, this ark kind of represents that. We have other parts of the tabernacle that are not mixed with acacia wood, but the ark is. Make a mental note. As we move out from the ark, there's a missing piece of furniture that doesn't get talked about in this passage. And it's pretty, even the way God orders the instructions are kind of neat. There's no altar of incense, which should, should be the ark, this veil that's made out of all these fabrics and colors, and then there should be an altar of incense, and you would burn the incense, and the smoke would go through the veil, and that was a symbol of prayer. But you can't talk directly to God unless you're reconciled with God, and you can't be reconciled with God until the, the symbolism is complete. So the altar of incense doesn't get mentioned yet, and it doesn't get built yet. It gets built last. It's the last piece that goes in there. So I just... Just note that it won't get introduced for another five chapters, but it does, it, it, there's a reason for that is because there's an order to this. First, there's God. Or if you want to take the ark and symbolize Jesus, first there's God with the law and the rule and the authority that's in the middle. The next piece of the furniture that gets talked about is the lid for the box. So covering this law, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. So no acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width, so it fits perfectly on top of this ark, this box. The lid's a uniquely important object. The box, in some ways, just holds the lid up. The lid is far more important than the box. So the whole point of the Bible is how we're going to get reconciled with God. Listen to this. You shall make two cherubim of gold out of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of one piece of the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. 
and they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give to you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in the commandment to the children of Israel. So you build this for me, and this is where I'm going to meet you, Moses. Because he's talking, remember, right to Moses. This is where we're going to talk. But the place that I'm going to talk from is directly over this mercy seat that covers the law. So for God to see the law, he's got to see through these cherubim and this mercy seat. Okay? It gets even cooler. The mercy seat becomes a major kind of theme in the New Testament, which I'll get into. But let me talk about cherubim first. Uh, Throughout the Bible, you see basically beings that are not of the earthly world, and we call them angels. The Bible calls them cherubim, seraphim, and there are other messengers. So um, most of these that have names have L somewhere in their name, Mike L, and that is because God is part of these beings. They operate or work for God. So God has an employee workforce, and it's these angels. So these cherubim are going to be symbolized here in that they work for or mediate between God and man in the same way that Moses has been given that role of mediation, which is why the Jews think Moses is a pretty big guy, because he was put in that role too. And not a lot of humans get that. So cherubim were seen as the guardians of Eden. Remember, there are two cherubim that kind of guarded Eden. They get, they're soldiers. They get post-duty. They don't get the fun things. They have to just stand guard a lot of times. So cherubim kind of are seen as not the highest of the angels. Um, They're considered divine steeds. If you look at the road word, they're like holy horses. So they're workhorses. They're the ones that kind of sit and hold things up and bear weights and all that sort of thing. Um, Cherubim are also used in the Persian religion. So you see some influence of the Jewish people in the Persians when you go over that way. Um, and, and you have these two things carved out. You're not to worship these things because they're not God. And there's nothing here that says you should worship these little angels and the Jews never do, right? They worship cows, but they don't worship the angels. <laughs> the mercy seat's far more interesting. And this is what the cherubim are guarding, this mercy seat. The Hebrew word is kapareth or place of atonement or literally in the Greek, propitiation is the word, Right? And when we talk about Jesus in Romans 3.23, you see that word propitiation. Um, and that propitiation is exactly what Jesus fulfilled that gave him the authority to be the propitiation between God and man. This mercy seat's the thing that sits between God and God's rule for man, right? So Romans 3.25, just a couple verses later, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Those are not just Paul's words. He's explaining a highly Jewish concept that came from this tabernacle, right? You have law that shows you that you're a sinner. There's a mercy seat or a propitiation that sits on top of it, and God will process that law only through the mercy seat, right? So note that almost all visual representations of this mercy seat, if you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, or if you look at any visual representation, it's very rare, and I think this is true of the world, they don't want to think about a mercy seat because it makes you think about your sin. What they want to think about is this glorious golden box with two beautiful angels on top. And almost do a Google search on the Ark of the Covenant and check images. Almost all of the images you'll see is a golden box with two cherubim on it, but it's missing the seat. And the seat's the important part. It's the propitiation. It's the thing that stands between us and our judgment, 
right? Um, and I think it's really interesting when you look at how the world represents the ark, they tend to forget the seat. They don't put the chair in the middle of it. So that seat covers the law that's going to condemn us to death. Later, the priests are going to sprinkle the sacrificial blood all over this mercy seat and this ark. So the blood of the sacrifice goes on the mercy seat through which God sees it and says, oh, that's sacrificial blood. I won't take the law to hold these people to account. It's the same thing he did with Passover in Egypt. You put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, you're protected. I'm going to skip over that house. And that's how I'm going to deal with human beings. Anybody who puts themselves under the blood of the lamb, I'm going to skip the law when it comes to that person. They just won't be held accountable for it. So you can be a sinner, but you're not going to be held accountable. And some of you, because I know some of you are thinking, then I can sin all I want. And you just got to read Romans because Paul says, no, that's not how this all works. And he spends a whole book explaining that, right? Um, So the covering of blood on the propitiation, God passes over and judges the law. Jesus then is in the mercy seat and he's the blood that covers the mercy seat. Two in one deal. Any shopper knows that's a great deal. And a reasonable deal, I should take that. The word mercy seat, propitiation, it's the same word. God didn't even trust us to figure out the symbolism on that, right? It's the same word. So God looks at his law and will literally sit over the top of that. Later on in Chronicles, the tabernacle is not called the tabernacle. It's called the house of the mercy seat. This is the most important thing. This is the relationship we have. It's the most holy of holies. It's the center. It's the middle. It's that place where God will condescend and turn himself into something lesser so that we even lesser humans can see that there's a glory there above the mercy seat. That doesn't diminish God in the least. It makes God intimate and personal and even more powerful than a, than a distant God could ever be, right? Then we get to the showbread. Step outside the Holy of Holies and you have the holy place. So two major sections of this tabernacle. And here's the furniture. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length. By the way, a cubit is about half of me. So I'm two cubits tall. Or Minecraft. That's the cubit. And Minecraft is built around what roughly a cubit is. Two cubits makes a little Minecraft person. So if you want to know how big a cubit is, just kind of take a normal sized person and chop them in half. Not literally. Okay? So this is going to be two cubits. This is a long table. And it's going to be a cubit in the width and a half a cubit in its height. It's a coffee table, right? On the coffee table, you shall overlay it with pure gold, verse 24, and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. For years, people didn't know what this meant, right? This got lost to history until people started digging up things like in the Roman Empire, there's this great ark, uh, the Ark of Titus. And they have a picture of this and it's like, oh, it's a gold table, but there's actually like a molding piece that goes around it that you could put your hands up into and and grab, but you didn't grab it because it would also have rings. You shall make for it four gold rings and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs, verse 27. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the pulled barrows to bear the table. You shall take, you shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried with them, and you shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring, and you shall make them of pure gold, 30, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. And before me, again, remember in the Hebrew, that's in my face. You shall put the bread out in front of my face always. So the priest would rotate that bread out every week and put fresh bread on the table. 
The whole sanctuary is going to be the dwelling place for God. It's not just the ark room. God is everywhere. And this is about humans. It's a symbol for human relationship to God. So to get to the ark, to get to God, you have to go past the showbread, right? That's going to be on one side of this holy place. And to represent that relationship with God, we're supposed to see some truths there. So there's no reason for the size of the table that's given, but I think we'll find out someday. Um, and we do know kind of what it looks like because we have images and, and, and archaeology has dug up some of those things. In all cultures, including Jewish culture, a table usually symbolizes friendship. It's why we break bread together. It's why we eat together. It's why that part of what we do is really important. And not just we as a small group, though it's important for us too. It's important for everybody. If you want to be friends with people, you eat with them. You have them over to your house. You, you feed each other and you break food together. I think the cool part of the friendship we've lost in our era because we don't poison each other anywhere near as much as they did in the ancient world. But to eat with somebody in the ancient world meant you trusted that they weren't going to poison you or that they were going to properly take care of the food. You trusted that they were clean. Actually, that's kind of relevant today. Sometimes you go to people's houses and you don't want to eat their food because you don't know how it's been prepared, right? Or even a restaurant where the floors are a little scuzzy and you're kind of like, I don't know if I want to eat this food because I don't know what's going on in the back. We had a Chinese place back in Ohio. They condemned and whatever, but we walked past. They'd leave the door open to their back room and it was stacked with boxes and flies were all over back there. We still ate the Chinese food, right? And in fact, in Chinese culture, if you see the fish tanks, the reason for the fish tanks is they're trying to prove to you that if I can keep a fish alive, I know how to prepare your food. Eating is a symbol of friendship. So right here in this covenant with God is a table. And that's why I would serve this God, because this God understands the importance of food, right? And I think that's wonderful. I serve God for more than just that reason, but that's an awfully good one. So it's a symbol of friendship. You shall set the showbud on the table before me always in my face. This is called the bread of the face. It's also, it could be called face bread um, or the bread of faces, right? This is this idea that there's a friendship with God, that God's our sustenance and that we break bread with him. In Leviticus 24, 5, we know that they used fine flour to make it and they would make 12 cakes of bread. So sitting on this big long table are 12 cakes, mm -hmm. which of course 12 symbolizes the government or the, the nation of Israel, right? There's 12 tribes. It goes with these 12 loaves of bread. Here's what's even better. You know how they would treat this? So awesome bread, like what we ate with our soup tonight, homemade, good stuff. Then they would cover it with frankincense, right? And if any of you know Christmas stories, you know where else frankincense gets used. There's another, there's one human that was actually anointed with frankincense, which was Jesus. And I, okay, so it gets even cooler. Oh, so Leviticus 24, 8 says that bread is for an everlasting covenant, which that's kind of a mystery to the Jews. And Jesus says that covenant has been fulfilled. I am the bread of life. And he's not just saying it like a cool metaphor. He's saying something that would have been relating directly to the temple that was still up and active when Jesus was alive. The plates would have been made of pure gold. Uh, there's no mixing. These plates sit on God sustains and holds the bread. Um, so we now have gold and we have frankincense. You start to wonder where's the myrrh, right? And there's that list of spices that we haven't got to yet. The myrrh is also involved. So gold, frankincense, and myrrh are totally relevant to temple practice and that promise of God that he will come to dwell among us, right? So when you see that happening in the Christmas story, as we get close to Christmas, know that there's tons of stuff on the tabernacle. You should probably be studying more of it, okay? So 
the pitchers then are used to to do some of that um, seasoning. The bowls are generally, we'll find out in Leviticus, have wine in them. So on this table sit bowls of wine and 12 cakes of bread, right? John, by the way, Jesus is born in a town named Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means the house of bread, right? So Bethlehem, being the house of bread, gives birth to this Jesus, and, and he grows up there. And later on, one of the first things he does is he's at a wedding and he makes wine. And later on, one of his most famous miracles is he reproduces bread, right? And you start to see, oh, maybe God's trying to say something here, right? Listen to this. This is John 6, 20, 31. Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to them, Lord, give us this bread all the time. I want that bread. That's good stuff. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. (coughs) He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I've come down the face of God the Jews complain about this and they start thinking we want to kill this guy. Why do you kill people? Because he says he's bread. You do it because this is so interwoven into the Jewish culture. This is a symbol of God himself. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, I am the pathway to get to the ark. You have to go by me to get to the ark. I'm that guy. Who says that? They're either nuts or they're God, right? And if, if you don't think they're God, you should probably end them. And it, it's hard to hate on the Pharisees and the Sadducees too much because they're protecting their faith. They're protecting this. That bread is holy to them. It's sacred. It symbolizes that God is going to fellowship with us someday. And Jesus is like, I'm the guy. Come talk with Let's eat bread together. Let's break bread. Come fellowship with me. I'm God. And that's a huge claim to make. And we're all here as Christians because we bought that, right? So let's find out more. He also says, I'm skipping down to verse 51 in John 6 still. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. And I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore quarreled amongst themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jews are ticked off. You don't say this stuff. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Unless you get this, you're dead in spirit. You'll never see the Shekinah glory of God. You'll never get to the ark. You'll never get to the mercy seat. Unless you understand what God's doing, and unless you study what he's doing, you're not going to figure this out. It's so simple, a five-year-old can figure it out. But we as high-thinking adults, we mix that up, and we muddy muddy that water with other things. It's really simple. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But that's that's in a couple chapters. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So even the manna thing that God was doing in the desert is a symbol set up to prepare the Jewish people to receive the Messiah. It's an image that lives for all of eternity as this is God can provide bread out of thin air, right? God can put that bread on, it stays forever before him in the temple. 
right? And then there's Jesus that will be that eternal bread that never goes away. You don't have to replace the Jesus bread and it doesn't decay after a day like the manna bread. The face bread, the face-to-face with God bread, it lives forever. Okay, then there's a lampstand. Ark sitting right here, holy of holies, showbread table. On the other side is going to be a lampstand, right? Which provides light. You all know where I'm going with this, right? So you have to, when you walk into the tabernacle, you have to walk past the showbread on your right, maybe, and the lampstand on your left. You have to come through the way to get to God, right? And here's the other, so here it is, verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold, not mixing this with earthly stuff, right? This is totally heavenly. The lampstand shall be hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be in one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand on one side, and three branches of the lampstand on the other side. Three bowls shall be made of like almond blossoms on one branch. So one shaft in the middle, three branches out one side, three branches out the other. The word for lampstand is menorah. So we all know this Hebrew word, right? And if you've seen a menorah, you know exactly what these things look like. Only pay attention to the details on this because not all menorahs have this. Each branch should have three little almond blossoms that go up it, right? And each one proceeds from the next. So on a branch, there will be three pieces to it. Three bowls made of like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand, on the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made into almond blossoms, each with an ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, and a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. So each lampstand comes out of one of these things. There's a main vine, and there are branches that come out the side of it, right? And you're all like, wait, I think I know that verse. Their knobs and their branches shall all be made of one piece, all of it hammered, one hammered piece of gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold, and it shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. So nobody quite knows what a talent of gold is, but a lot of people, when they represent the temple, think of this as almost a human-sized lampstand. So something that would be as tall as a person that would shine light. And it has these six branches out either side, one in the middle. There's a lamp on each one. And the lamp has a bowl that covers one side. The light only goes one direction. It also doesn't say what direction the light should face, which you could get into whatever that means. Almond blossoms, they're easy. They're the first thing that blossom in the Middle East in the spring. They're the new fruit. They're the the fresh springtime kind of blossom that comes out. The life or the renewing, there's going to be these seasons of renewal or a birthing of different things. And a lot of people believe these three blossoms represent these periods of history um, that have to do with like, and this is, we have a seminarian here. There's Old Testament era. Here's the covenant with Moses. There's New Testament era. Here's the covenant with Jesus. And then there's the return of Jesus and life in the kingdom. There's three stages to, to the universe according to the Bible, right? There's going to be three pieces to it. So the, what's kind of interesting right now today, there's a group called the Temple Institute in, in Israel, and they've rebuilt all of these implements. They don't have a building yet, 
but they've done it. And it was kind of interesting because Steph was like, wasn't that kind of cool that they had the building and then they lost the implements and, you know, cause they get stolen by the Babylonians and everything else. And now they got the implements, but they don't have the building. And I was like, yeah, actually it's exactly the process because we don't have the instructions for the building yet. The implements get made first. Well, the Temple Institute's already built all the implements, all the bowls, all the platters, the lampstand, everything. They haven't made an ark to my knowledge yet, um, but they're ready for real estate. If they get a place to build the new temple, they're going to build it. And when that starts to happen, hopefully we'll finish with our Bible study because that's pretty much, if you read Revelation, we're about at the end at that point. So the bowls and the light are directional. Um, the rabbinic people suggest that there's um, that these bowls are, there's the lampstand bowls and then there's the almonds and then they match the number of bread pieces that are on there. I don't know if that's the case. I couldn't figure out the numbers on that. Um, what's interesting then is if the lampstand is on one side of the holy place and the showbread's on the other side and the priests have to come in to replace the bread every week and the light is over here facing any direction, it means the only time you have shadows cast upon the bread is when humans are in the room. And I thought that was kind of interesting and, and that that the only thing that really blocks light because gold's going to, everything's going to be brilliant. When you put any light in this place, that gold is going to just shine. And that'll be pretty much what you see when you walk in. Um, but humans will bring a lot of shadows into the space. Um, anyways, just a thought. Um, um, so inside you've got all gold. Outside, that bronze is going to be used for the, the uh, burnt offerings. So that'll be a big altar out in the front. Gold here then is with the lampstand. It's one piece, one nature. So you've got a God that connects with earth and heaven, acacia wood and gold. You've got this bread of life on a table of acacia wood and gold. And then you've got a lampstand that's just gold. There are three major implements inside here, and it's all the presence of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right? It's kind of cool. God uses what's really cool here, and I think this is interesting. If you look at the King James and you have verse 31, it uses pronouns that are human pronouns. It stops calling the lampstand an it, and it starts calling the lampstand his. Okay, so it reads in the King James, and thou shalt make a lampstand, a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. And then it goes back to saying it afterwards. Again, you're starting to think, wow, why would you personify a candlestick holder? Like, And I know they did in Beauty and the Beast, but that's a Disney movie and we're not studying Disney. Um, but why would you do that? So from the middle of this thing, there's going to be a light for the world that gets beaten out of one piece. First of all, note how to the tension, because God says, do it according to the pattern I have. He wants this lampstick to be one piece that gets the crap beaten out of it to become something beautiful. Sound familiar? Right? One piece of gold. Um, to a Jewish listening listener, how amazing then does this sound when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And he that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Jesus is called the light of the world all over the place. John 1, 4, 1, 9, 8, 12, 12, 46, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 1 Timothy 6, 15, just to name a few. Those are cool ones. You can go back to the recording and do your own light Bible study. Jesus is the light of the world. Makes the point very clear, even more clear than the bread thing, right? 
He also calls himself the bread, John 6.35, John 6.41. The table then and the menorah opposite of each other become the holy place, and then there's incense or prayer that gets you to God, right? The outer courtyard has that bronze, uh, impure, burnt offering place. So you give an offering, take care of your sin at the bronze altar, wash yourself pure in the well or the ocean, and then you walk in between the showbread and the light, and then you come up to the incense altar, say your prayers. The incense, that smoke carries your prayers into the presence of God. That's our relationship with God. Get rid of your sin, purify it out of your life, Come through the way, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, and that's where you get your life with God. That's how you dwell with God. And the whole thing becomes a very consistent vision of heaven. This is what heaven's going to be like. We can be with God all the time. So John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, which is often associated with the law, and the life. I'm the grace at the same time. I'm not only the pathway to God, I'm the truth, the law of God, and I'm the grace of God right? No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm it. What a claim to make, right? In Revelations, they have the lampstand show up back in Revelation. We'll get to that when we cover Revelations. If you really want to do a study on the lampstand, go read those pieces of Revelation, and you can see the role that that light has in, re- in the end days, and that the, uh, the, the, the light that shines from the church the lampstand's associated with the church. So when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, it's basically saying we're all kind of, we're going to work on this planet together and I'm going to work through you. And if you work through me, you're going to be the church and you're going to bring my light to the world, right? So those aren't fanciful images. Or in Second Peter, Peter says, we don't just come here with fancy myths. We come here with something that's rooted in the history of the world. It is not just a belief system that people have to sell on street corners. It's a belief system that's been rooted for thousands of years in an image God set up that we would know how to relate to God. And it actually works. So, and this shall be Exodus 27, if I could flip for a little bit. Exodus 27, 21 says, this shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. This is an eternal symbol. This symbolism goes on. We don't actually have a temple right now, but Jesus pretty much said, I am that temple, right? And you're going to do this work for me. Verse 40, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Moses, don't screw this up, right? I have something I'm trying to say that I'm not revealing to you, but I want you to do this according to my pattern. Man, how convicting is that? When God says to us, I got something I want you to do, but I'm not going to tell you why or how, but we know we're supposed to do it. I'm trying to do something through you. Will you trust me that this is the right thing to do? That I'm doing something eternal through you, a finite being. And Moses just does it. And I think that's cool. But I'm not quite done. I had one more geeky thing I had to do, which I've saved myself, held myself back the whole thing. You've noticed a lot of numbers in this chapter, right? There's a whole field of study that you could get your doctorate in called numerology. Christian or Jewish numerology is a study of the numbers in the Hebrew language and how they relate to messages. So I want to give you just a 10-minute numerology 101 because it's really cool. And some of you that like math will really geek out on this stuff, right? Because it's pretty cool. God loves math people too. And I know some of us may, may struggle with that. You know, some of us artists and social studies people, you know, but God loves the artists, the math people too. And he gives them stuff that I know from my dad, he was a math teacher for 30 years. My dad loves this stuff. 
and he gets all excited about it, but I, I don't know enough math to get that excited about it. The deeper you get, the cooler it gets for math people. I'm just gonna give you the surfacey stuff and hopefully you can be like, oh, I can respect math people now. So here it is. God loves patterns. And again, let me, well, I'll, I'll close with the same thought, but I'm gonna start with this thought. This is fun, but it's not our faith. And I think that's sometimes where people get lost in numerology and people get shy away from it from a Sunday morning pulpit because it can be a stumbling block for people. Because if this is all you do is sit around and crunch numbers, you become a geeky recluse in your basement and you're not out teaching people about the love of Jesus Christ. And that's a danger, right? So as cool as it is, we're gonna get into just a little bit here. All right, here's how this works. You should know, if you don't already, the first nine letters of the Hebrew alphabet are actually their first nine numbers too. So Aleph, the letter A, actually means one, alpha, alpha right? Beta or bet? Bet. Bet, thanks, Nathan. This is what happens when you got people study the Bible in the room with you. Aleph, Aleph, Aleph and Bet, okay? One, two, but they also mean beginning and they also mean dual or a dual nature or two of something, right? Um, so all these numbers actually have an actual meaning in their language too. It's not like English, right? Um, so the traditional meanings then have very powerful impact to the Jewish ear because if you say it in the Hebrew and you speak the Hebrew, the words actually mean exactly what the number, they mean what they mean, right? And the only comparison is like we have homophones, homographs, uh, homonyms, like we have words in our language that mean different things. If you can't see the spelling, you don't know what I'm saying. So if I say words like red or red, you don't know which one I'm talking about unless you see the spelling of it, right? So that's part of the Hebrew too. But when you hear it by ear, it sounds like red, right? Or crane or date or leaves or rose or right. You don't know which meaning I have based on, unless you hear the context. Then there's other words that are spelled different but sound the same, alter, eight, band, blue, bore, by, I'm just doing the ABCs, canon, courses, you don't know what that word means unless you see the spelling of it. And then you have words that are spelled the same, but they're pronounced a little different, right? And then it's the pronunciation that helps you with it. All of these things play into numerology. So when you hear the numbers, they mean a certain thing. You with me so far? Okay, this gets really cool. I got way too carried away with this. <laughs> So I'll give you a sampling and we'll just start out because we've already seen it. I talked about the John 1:16, the grace upon grace. To a Hebrew ear, that would mean five upon five because the word five and grace kind of go together, right? So the law of God or the grace of God is where you get that kind of thing because the 10 commandments are five and five. There's 10 commandments there. So when you hear five and five, which is how the Jewish people would say that because they only have the first nine numbers, right? then the, the five and five commandments are the grace upon grace. And that's what, when John's saying that, he's making a play upon words. And it's not like a hyper mysterious play on words. To a Hebrew ear, it would sound very familiar, right? So those 10 commandments are there um, and they come on two tablets. So they, they literally come on two tablets of five commandments apiece. Um, and they're referred to that way. They're not often referred to as, um, Anyways, we'll get on to other things. There's five types of sacrifices, right? So this is the law. There are five sections to the book of Psalms, right? And so this number five keeps coming up. It's usually associated with God's plan for grace. Here's the law, and then there's grace for that in some way, shape, or form. There's five names that are used for the tabernacle, which I think is relevant for this chapter, which is why I started digging into this. 
the tabernacle in verse nine is called in verse nine of this chapter it's called the tabernacle in twenty six thirty six it's called the tent in twenty nine forty two it's the tent of meeting with god and in in exodus thirty eight twenty one it's called the tabernacle of the testimony so even in the book of Exodus they use five different names for the tabernacle that's god's plan for grace and salvation and so with Jewish people that's kind of there. They also do things that where they expand the geometrical shape of it. Trust me on this one. <laughs> the Old Testament, the original Old Testament before they messed with it in 100 AD, and I'll tell you why they messed with it in a second, was 22 books because first and second Kings was Kings and all the minor, pro- minor prophets were one book. So they came on 22 scrolls. So in the old Jewish tradition, it would have been there. And the first five books are the law or the grace of God, the, 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 uh, Help me. The Pentateuch. Penta, five, that's the Greek word. So it's the Pentateuch. It's the five-tuch. It's the grace books. It's the law books. It's the book of the law. If you take a pentagram with five sides and you expand it out on three sides, and three is fullness or completeness, then you have 12. Because you just go, and you can do this with little dots if you want to. Now you have 12 dots if you expand at one level. 12 dots would include then the histories, the books of the law and the books of the histories of the Old Testament, 12 books. If you do that one more time, you'll have 22 dots, which becomes a really important number to the Jewish people because 22 is the fullness of the Old Testament. And if you do 22, then you have the law, the histories, and the 10 books of the prophets. 5, 12, 22. Some of you are glazing over and some of you are going, oh, this is kind of cool. I won't be here too long. So if you add all these up, 5, 12, and 22, you get the number 39. Oh, that's a great number. Why is that such a great number? Because 39, when pronounced in the Hebrew, is 3 times 13, or 3 times 1 and 3. 3, 1, 3. That's a holy number, and it's seen as an important number. We just got done with a land stand that's designed around a 3, 1, 3 pattern. Three branches, one shaft, three branches. 3, 1, 3, right? 39. 39 then would imply that you have the completeness or the fullness of with the number 13, the one three is lawlessness. So that number is often associated with this. So you have the fullness of lawlessness when you have these, these 39 things. So you add up the whole Old Testament, it's a plan for grace fulfilled, 22. If you add up the numbers of the types of books there are, it actually means that there's punishment needed for the law. And that's how you would pronounce those numbers, right? So the original New Testament then appeared as things were settling down at about 80, 90 AD. They're starting to say there are 27 letters and gospels and books that compose what we think will be the New Testament. This was really offensive to the Jewish people. And we can't understand how offensive this numerology would be because we just don't think this way. But it really got people mad because 22 and 27, when you add them up, is 49. And 49 is seven and seven, seven by seven, seven upon seven is 49, right? Which means perfect, holy completeness times perfect, holy completeness. That Old Testament isn't perfect. So the Jews got all mad. You made it 27 just so you could have a book with 49 books in it, right? Because you think that Christ is the fulfillment and the perfect, holy completeness of the scriptures. Well, he's not, darn it. So they got together and the Jewish Pharisees organized it and they changed the number of books in the Old Testament to be 24. And they changed the number because they wanted to show that to God 
times 12, the Israeli governmental order is the true perfection, 24. In other words, the authority of the priesthood is the most important thing. This is fascinating history stuff that people did stuff because of these numbers and what they meant. But they didn't want the new Christians to run around saying there are holy, there are full eternal perfection upon eternal perfection in our Bible, which would be us in the English saying there are 49 books in our Bible. But in the Hebrew, you're saying there's eternal perfection upon eternal perfection in books in the Bible. And they just got upset about that, right? I'll give you a couple more, and this has to do with the tabernacle. One is unity and primacy. It means uh, that God is three, but he's not just three. He's three in one. He's three, but he's perfectly unified, right? Unity, primacy, fullness in the first. Three, the number is complete, or it means completeness or finished, right? But it's not seven. Seven is eternal perfection, completeness, and finished, right? So if you have three righteous periods or three righteous people, um, they are a complete group. It takes two or three witnesses to make something be true in their judicial system, right? When you praise the Lord, you say, holy, 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 because that's a complete worship line, okay? This matters to the Jewish people. We've lost a lot of this in our culture and our tradition. There were three righteous men before the flood with Abel, Enoch and Noah, and there are three righteous men that God chooses before Israel's born, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three and three with a flood in the middle. Three, one, three. It keeps coming up, this three, one, three theme, right? You have pre-flood patriarch and law, Jesus Christ, and you have the church millennia in heaven, all of history in three, one, three with Christ in the middle, right? You have three, one, three all over the place, this gets bad when you get to the number six, because 313, when you take out that one in the middle, it's just six. Six is a bad number. <laughs> six means weakness or sin, right? Six is when humans were made on day six, right? <laughs> it, it, six is the amount of days we work in a week. Work sucks. Six days of work and then one day of beautiful rest at the end of it. And Christ is our rest, right? Six is the number of years you could be a slave in the Hebrew world. That weak, unfulfilled, low-life human existence was six. And that's what it symbolized. So six, you're almost there, but you're not. You're not perfect. You're not complete. You're not eternal. Uh, Man then is made on the sixth day, works for six days, and slaves for six days. Translated literally in the Hebrew, to enslave mankind in their work is the number six, six, six. You with me on some of this? This is, again, I'll come back to it. This isn't what we worship, but it's kind of cool. But that's where the number comes from. You could also translate that uh, working to enslave mankind is the number of the beast. That's what Satan's trying to do. He's trying to enslave you to your own meaninglessness to work and slave all the time and come to a life where you have no meaning and no consequence and you're totally irrelevant and you die, the beast has won and he gets you. And at the end of days, revelation goes off. The revelation people, they're numerologists because they study all this stuff and they really like it more than I do. Um, I just got into it for a week. So outside of Christ, humanity is six. Put Christ in the middle and you're back to three, one, three. Complete Christ, complete Mankind with Christ in the middle is eternally perfect, right? And that's kind of when you say these things in the Hebrew, they kind of play out that way. So seven becomes this great number. 
It's found throughout the Bible. Okay. Seven would be maybe six and one is used over 800 times throughout the Old Testament. It's used in the Shiva, right? There are three root words that look identical. The number, full or complete, the oath or the swear. In other words, as bad as six is, seven is awesome. It's a great number. And seven is all over the place. Abraham had seven lambs that were literally called the oath lambs then. If you take the word seven, it also means oath. It means fullness. So he took the oath lambs, and remember he sacrificed them to make an oath with Abimelech, right? Seven lambs are where you dwell with people. There's this ceiling. There's perfection to it. There's seven words in the first verse of Genesis. Perfect. In the beginning, in the Hebrew, there's seven words. We English people screw it all up. The word created is used exactly seven times in the first of Genesis. I should have gotten into this in Genesis 1-1, but you'd all been freaked out and you want to come back to Bible study. Uh, the first and the last, the phrase, the fir- God is the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, it's used exactly seven times in the Bible, right? We sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the altar, guess how many times? Seven times. And there's a meaning. For, we don't just read over those things in the Old Testament. When it says seven, it means oath. It means fullness. You shall sprinkle the blood of the lamb oath times on the altar. Fullness times. You shall fully sprinkle the oath on the altar. Right? And those words actually mean the same thing. There are seven days in a good week, not a work week, but there's seven days. In Revelation, there's seven seals. There's seven types of book in the Old Testament. There's uh, seven marches around Jericho before it doesn't fall on the sixth time. That's weak and imperfect. It falls on the seventh time because that's perfect. So God honors and does miracles through these numbers too. Like God cares about the pattern. And I'll make a point with that in a second. Naaman, when he wants to get rid of his leprosy, uh, who's the prophet? Elijah? Elijah? One of the the e-prophets tells him to go wash in the river seven times, right? So all of these sorts of things have to do with it. There are seven major divisions in the Bible that are in three parts. So you have these kinds of pieces. You have the law, the histories, and the prophets in the Old Testament. You have the gospels, the general epistles, and Paul's epistles, or you could say the gospels, the epistles, and the prophecies in the New Testament. So if you have three, and then one is the gospels, then you have three types of other books in the New Testament. You have, again, this pattern of three, one, three. And you're like, yeah, but you could change this. Yes, you could. So the menorah is 313. It's a perfected light. It's the light of fullness shining upon the tabernacle. It's all you need. It's perfect, right? It's the law of grace of God. It's three upon three, but it has something in the middle. It has this shaft in the middle that will be there. This branch, this rod of Jesse will show up and be this promise for us. And it fulfills the weakness of human beings. The branches without the shaft is just a stupid six, and it doesn't matter. But seven, that matters. Verse 40, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Can you see why I got into that? The pattern matters to God in ways that we don't quite understand. And there are little things that we can start to understand, especially if we speak the Hebrew, that it becomes kind of neat. So as compelling as numerology is, and there's more, by the way, you really want to get into this stuff, there's tons of it. As compelling as it is, God really wants to dwell with us. And it's important that we understand that relationship and that we see God in it. So these seven lamps that are on the lampstand that represent a throne of heaven, a mercy seat that's going to be there, 
those lamps are still burning in Revelation 4-5. Before the throne of God, there are these seven lamps that burn. They're bright. They're shining off the gold. They're beautiful. There's incense that fills this tabernacle, covered, by the way, with this ramskin black thing, which happens to be covered with these white linens, right? These pure white linens covering up the black sinful ramskins covered by a beautiful waterproofing you know, system. So this is a space that would have been a gorgeous space to walk into. It would have smelled good, looked good, and felt good. And it would have been peaceful. Those thick leathers would have kept the sound of the camp away. You would have came out of that busy, noisy camp that, that had two million people in it. You would have walked into the tabernacle and there would, just would have been peace. Have you ever been in like a prayer closet or prayer room? And you just come in there and just everything goes away and you leave your troubles at the door. And that's all kind of protected and guarded. God wants to bring that space to the Israeli, to, to the Hebrew people. So if Jesus died on the cross, his justice, his judgment, how do I, now let me start over on this. If you think of that holiness and that grace and the beauty of the tabernacle, when you've got some carpenter from Nazareth running around saying he's the light and he's the bread, you can imagine how utterly offensive that would have been to anybody who respected the temple and the beauty of God. And in in this chapter in Exodus, we should understand how beautiful this tabernacle would have been. And it was a model for heaven. Don't Don't besmirch that. Don't belittle that. Don't ignore that. This is what God wants us to know about him, that he wants us to come into his presence and worship with him. What the Jewish people didn't understand is Jesus was doing that in a way that was so much more powerful of this shadow of relationship with God. Jesus made it so we could have that tabernacle in our own bedroom at night before we go to bed. I can't imagine what life would be like without the Holy Spirit, without praying and knowing those prayers were going to get answered. What would life be like? Or if you didn't see your brothers and sisters in the faith get a word from God and get energized about something, I think I know what career I would need to be in. You know, and you see those moments where God speaks directly to us. How beautiful that is. Where we hear things and we know things about people that didn't come from our knowledge. It was like we got a word from somewhere and we know something that we shouldn't know. And we realize the Holy Spirit's working through us. That's not happening in your life. Study this idea of dwelling with God and being in the tabernacle. Get rid of your sins on the burnt on that bronze altar where you give your burnt offering. Confess your sins before the Lord. Wash in the ocean, wash in the water like Jesus did. Be baptized. Then walk into the presence of God. Amen. Here's the bread of life to your right. Here's the light of the world to your left. There's God right in front of you. You just walk through Jesus Christ and you have this place where you can pray and meet God all by yourself. We, I love that we live now and not here. Because these Jewish people still had to go like a thousand years is what it's going to take for God to feel like this idea is so baked into their senses that there's this foundation. Here's the other thing. When 10 families got together in the Jewish tradition, they made a synagogue. So all throughout the Roman world, in almost every one of the towns, there's a sin, There's at least 10 Jewish families. There's synagogues all over the Roman world that are practicing what we just read tonight. It creates a template or a, a, a communication system where the, 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 the disciples could go and preach in every town in the Roman Empire and have a place they could just show up and start talking on a Saturday morning. How awesome is that? Right? So God's creating a system through the, the Jewish faith where the message of Jesus Christ can go out in a single generation. First-person witnesses could talk to thousands of people through this system that's getting built right now. 
God does that and bakes it in. Here's the other thing. Remember the people were like, we love this law, but Moses, you go talk to God. Moses is going to take on that role. And you think to yourself, do I really want to talk directly to God? And we go to God with our prayers with this boldness that they didn't have. They were terrified of God because he represented himself in this fire and fury. And they're like, Moses, you go talk to God for us. I don't think we can handle that kind of judgment, right? So be our mediator. And when Jesus said, I'm your mediator, I do that for you, we get to come before the throne in that wonderful kind of way. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And don't besmirch my Jesus because he brings that into my life, right? Do you really want to know God? Because he's powerful. Really do you want to know God? Because he's really powerful, right? The completeness of God, this three-in-one being, that's a massive amount of energy, force, entity that we get to deal with. And we come before him because we've got this thing. But where else are we going to go? What else is there to go to? Like Peter said, like, to whom shall we go, Lord? Because you bring us the words of life. And there is no other place you can go. So you come close, you get to the Holy of Holies, and this is the method by which God's going to bring Jesus to the earth. It's through this religion and faith. So we're going to spend some time in the tabernacle. I haven't even built the tabernacle for you. Zach's going to do that next week. He's going to show you what the structure looks like. Um, These are just the furniture that goes inside of here. And the structure is going to cover that furniture and kind of make that space too. And it's going to be pretty amazing. So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we come to your word and we understand that you gave these words to Moses, that you told him what to write down. So Lord, we understand that uh, your word is living and it's ever present and it's good for reproof and encouragement and exhortation. Lord, help us to come into your presence. Help us to understand the symbolism of your law, of the mercy seat, of the bread of life, of the light of the world, Lord, that we can understand that you came to be a propitiation, a lampstand for our sins, that your propitiation, your gift, your your atonement for our sins covers everything we've done wrong. Lord, help us to not live in that sin because we are free from it and released from it. We can choose to not do it anymore. Um, Lord, help us to understand that, that, that reconciling with you means to live for you and with you, to abide with you. Lord, we want uh, to be in your presence, but there's a part of us that's scared of that presence because you may call us to do things we're not comfortable with or aren't part of our plan. Um, but Lord, we love you. We want to serve you. Lord, as we go into our jobs this week, help us to be a light that you said that your Holy Spirit abides within us. So help us to move forward as people of grace and love. Help us to encourage people. And as we go to work tomorrow, Lord, help us to look for people's needs and see how we can meet them. As we sacrifice our own life to serve others, we come into your presence, Lord, and we love you. And it's not our works that save us. We know that. Um, It's your blood that saves us. And and because of that, because of our love for you, we want to serve your sheep. And we want to love those around us. Lord, help us to have our own hearts be healed. If there's anybody in this room right now, Lord, that that is struggling, that is having a tough week, that is exhausted and tired, may you renew them. May their rest tonight be wonderful and may they wake up energized. May they wake up in your presence. Lord, may the images of the ark, the mercy seat, the table and the showbread, the nation of Israel, Lord, the lampstand and the light, may those images just dwell with us this week. May your word plant itself in our heart and grow within our hearts this week as we just grow in reverence for the work that you did and the pattern with which you put together this image of heaven for us. And Lord, may we pursue heaven. May that be the end goal because there's no other place to go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.